You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello. And welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. So our guest today is journalist and author Sinclair McKay. He's author of several books on British codebreaking, including The Secret Lives of Codebreakers, The Lost World of Bletchley Park, and The Secret Listeners, which is specifically about the Y service, uh, which was uh, the people actually listening and intercepting the communications. He is also the author of a book on the James Bond franchise, The Man with the Golden Touch. And his latest book is Dunkirk, From Disaster to Deliverance, which was just released, uh, I believe, a couple weeks ago. Yes. Um, so, Sinclair, thank you for coming to the National Spy Museum. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a great so honor. I really wanted to start with uh, talking about your books on cryptanalysis. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What got you interested in this field? Uh, what got me interested was I had read quite a bit um, about how the codes were broken at Bletchley Park and about the extraordinary work that they did at Bletchley Park, which some people reckoned to have shortened the war by two years. In fact, one of the codebreakers, one of the senior codebreakers there said, in fact, it shortened the war by three years because without the work of Bletchley, D-Day and the Normandy landings might not have worked at all. So it was clearly an awesome achievement. A kind of miracle had taken place in the English countryside, uh, in this unassuming country property. And I was fascinated uh, not just by the story of how they broke the codes, but who the codebreakers were as well, how they were drawn into this world, and the impact that it had on their lives afterwards, because it had an enormous impact on all the lives of the people who worked there. Yeah, and, and certainly you look at uh, people, general layperson's knowledge of this time period, they may have heard the name Alan Turing, and certainly I think they will even more so because there's a major motion picture coming out about Turing's life. And certainly in the last 10 years, people have become more and more familiar with the world of signals intelligence, whether it's in the United States with the NSA or a GCHQ over in Britain. And so these books are certainly topical. Um, I want to ask you about Turing himself, not we'll talk about the person in a second, but mm. what, what I found actually refreshing about your books was uh, as much it, d- as Turing deserves the praise that he gets, he wasn't the only person 
involved no. in this. And, and no, so you have Gordon Welchman, you've got the Polish effort before the British even get involved, and then your book really focuses a lot more on everyone else, and I think that that's really interesting. Indeed so. Well, yes, I mean, to be clear, I mean, the other thing that drew me into the story was the, the fascination of the German Enigma machines themselves. Uh, the Enigma machines had actually been invented uh, by a chap called Arthur Sherbius in 1919, and they were intended uh, to be used by banks and insurance firms. It was the first electric encrypting machine, and that made it a technological challenge that uh, the, 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 the British and the Polish uh, faced up to, and it was the Polish mathematicians in 1932 who incredibly were the first uh, to get a handle into it. So my fascination with the Bletchley Park story is how this um, unassuming country house in the, 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 a neglected corner of Buckinghamshire came to host uh, the finest, wildest intellects of a generation. Uh, Alan Turing had been signed up several years before the war. They had spotted his fantastic uh, potential as a mathematical prodigy. Uh, many other young people from Oxford and Cambridge were signed up. And then, as the war broke out and the war went on, a number of American cryptographers, of course, came over to Bletchley Park as well. Uh, it's the, the phrase, the special relationship, is often invoked uh, and often, I I in purely military terms, there was a lot of butting heads. But actually, the relationship between the British and American cryptographers was fantastically harmonious in that period, and I believe it remains uh, rather harmonious to this day. So, yes, Turing was very much part of a team at Bletchley Park, this, kind of, uh, this, extraordinary, this extraordinary establishment in this small provincial town. Uh, there was Gordon Welshman. There were classicists, classicists from a previous era of code-breaking as well, because uh, the younger people tended to be mathematicians, the older codebreakers from World War I, who had carried over from World War I, tended to be experts with language, and particularly long extinct languages. Uh, Alfred Dilwyn Knox was an expert with papyri, for instance. He would piece together fragments of ancient texts in languages long vanished. That was his mm -hmm. codebreaking genius. Turing's generation brought in the new generation of codebreaking generally, which is, as you say, the much more technologically driven. The first technology they were facing was the challenge of the Enigma machine, and then as the war went on, that challenge became even more complex. H how much in Britain did uh, cryptanalysis carry over from the First World War? Because in the United States, we had Black Chamber with Herbert Yardley, and that was uh, a temporary program that ends because the United States government or certainly high-level people within the government decided it just wasn't gentlemanly to spy on anyone. Um, <laughs> was, there a, was there a continuation uh, from the First World War? And you talked about Dilly Knox. I mean, yes. was there a, a broader continuation in Britain from the First World War to the Second? Yes, well, indeed there was. There, there wasn't so much concern about gentlemanliness, yeah. I don't think. Uh, in, in World War I, the British code-breaking effort was based in uh, a department enigmatically known as Room 40 in Whitehall. Uh, and as I say, that generation of codebreakers, the men and the women, uh, tended either to be classicists or expert linguists. Commander Alistair Denniston, who would go on to be the first director of Bletchley Park, was himself a fantastic linguist um, and an Olympic athlete as well, if memory serves. Uh, and in the interwar years after World War I, um, Room 40 became the Government Code and Cipher School a branch of the Foreign Office. It's a wonderful title for it, actually. You think of the School of Codes. It's something, uh, something particularly appealing about that. And this, this department contained people such as Alfred Dilwyn Knox, who continued all the way through to the Second World War. It also had uh, prodigies such as Josh Cooper, uh, a fantastically eccentric man, uh, who would exclaim random sentences, frightening the life out of people, who was built like a bear, but uh, a terrific fun, though, at the same time. And so this, this, this team, this coterie, carried on 
in the interwar years because their focus, first of all, was in the 1920s on the fledgling Soviet Union. Uh, that was the focus of their uh, code-breaking efforts in the 1920s. Then, with Germany in the 1930s and the rise of Hitler in 1933, it became very obvious to them what they were facing and what they had to do. My, my personal uh, research field is nuclear intelligence and, you know, talking about the Manhattan Project, I see a lot of real interesting analogies between what happens mm. at Bletchley Park and what happens out in New Mexico. You have yeah. the young, hotshot scientists or mathematicians in that case, yeah. overwhelming secrecy, um, yeah. and given a specific task to complete. I mean, break the enigma, build the atomic bomb, and on top of all of that, these, these eccentric geniuses kind of brought all together and just kind of the... Uh, it's interesting to see the dynamics, the personal dynamics, and the, these personality that that should clash. I mean, yes. you should not be able to put these many slightly odd geniuses <laughs> in one place and be successful. And, I, and I do, I, so I do see a lot of really, real interesting analogies between those two programs. Well, it was a, it was a, for Commander Alistair Denniston, the first wartime director of Bletchley Park. It was a fantastically difficult job. I and mean, forget about herding cats. This was like herding grasshoppers. It was just, as you say, just these these vaulting kind of intellects and. Uh, no, it wasn't all peace and harmony at Bletchley Park. They were at each other's throats quite a lot of the time. Uh, Dilly Knox, for instance, had a temper like Vesuvius. And if you go into the National Archives now, you find buried at the bottom of dusty boxes memos that Dilly Knox, at the height of the war, sent such a sulfuric memos about colleagues and their shortcomings and deficiencies. Uh, his great saving grace was that he never directed his temper towards the people working beneath him. It was always directed above monstrous memos. What a temper. But it all helped. It, it, kind of, it, it created the fizz that uh, uh, Bletchley Park needed, probably. And then, uh, then in the middle of the war, you get this kind of step change in Bletchley Park. What has started off as this kind of um, country house uh, base of kind of English eccentrics, very pre-technological. People were still working with pencil and paper and slide rules and blackboards. Uh, but the technology was coming on a pace, and this is where the genius of Alan Turing and Gordon Welshman together, uh, they created the bomb machines, uh, B-O-M-B-E. Now, these were not exactly code-breaking machines themselves, but if you fed them a crib or just a starting point from a message, they could then rattle through thousands upon thousands of different combinations at a speed that the human brain couldn't even contemplate. This wasn't the first computer, but this was the first step towards the computer, and that led then eventually to the creation of the Colossus, which was the kind of the first proto-computer. It's the machine from which all computers right. sprang, and which was the work of engineer uh, Dr. Thomas Flowers, uh, one of the great unsung heroes of Bletchley Park. I, I think one of the most enduring stories I've heard of Alan Turing, other than him chaining his coffee mug to the radiator, but it's... It, 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 there was a very good reason for that. Yeah. Well, and, yeah, all well, the gas masks, <laughs> and he had hay fever, and I mean, there's a lot of really interesting... Uh, revisionist history that actually tends to be a, a, a different way of looking at Turing uh, after yes. the war. But my, my my thing I find most interesting about Turing was uh, he's known as being, uh, he knew how smart he was. But there was a time when he built, or at least uh, had the, the framework for building the bomb, and Welchman came along and said, there's a better way of doing it. Yes. And instead of saying, you know, I'm Alan Turing, he said, you're right, this is better. And that kind of 
humility may be the wrong word, but maybe it's the right word in this case. I mean, that that maybe wins the war in that case because yeah, well, it's a combination of humility plus also just intense practicality. Uh, he was there to do a particular job, and he wanted to do that job particularly well. And if Gordon Welshman came along with uh, his development, the diagonal board, which was the addition that made the bomb machine particularly uh, effective, then yes, Turing was going to take that aboard. But at the same time, yes, Turing knew. Uh, exactly how clever he was, and I, I can't remember who it was who said about him that you also knew when you were talking to Turing that he would think thoughts that it wouldn't even have occurred to you it was possible to think, and you just that's how you knew you were in the presence of genius. But that all makes him sound quite heavy going as well. And actually, the, the Turing in his time at Bletchley seemed a kind of happy soul, quite a sort of cheerful soul. Uh, he had a very high pitched laugh that tried the patience of even his closest friends. And as for the tea mug being chained to the radiator, there is an explanation for this that I've got, which is also in the Bletchley Park memos. There are a number of furious internal memos being sent by the management about broken crockery. Now, all of this at the height of the war, all of this at the height of the Battle of the Atlantic, they are still sending memos about tea and about broken crockery from the canteen. Uh, one memo said, it's almost as if we're working in a mano war. What's going on? I went outside the other day and found a cup in a hedge. What's going on in this place? So they forbade people, they forbade code breakers from taking crockery out of the canteen and they put a special guard on the canteen. No, absolutely no crockery out. So... Turing's mug changed the radiator was him cocking a snook at the authorities. My <laughs> mug, my radiator, my tea, hands off. Very practical. As with yeah. all things Turing, there was always a practical explanation. Something that... <laughs> it's a fantastic story. Um, something that always interested me about Bletchley Park was their ability to keep secrets. Um, the Manhattan Project, the most top secret project of the war for the Americans, uh, yeah didn't do the greatest job in this. And it, it, for, in their defense, it was very difficult for them to stop people from noticing that all the greatest physics... Fi, 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 it's always one of those words, yes, isn't it? I say it all the time, too. <laughs> so it, it was incredibly difficult for them to stop people from noticing that all the greatest American physicists were all heading to New Mexico yes. at the same time. They all stopped publishing. They were no longer teaching their classes. Um, it, people noticed the top minds were disappearing. How did the British prevent the Germans or anyone else from noticing that all the greatest mathematicians, all the top code breakers were all of a sudden in suburban London working out of one area? I mean, that had to have been a difficulty uh, to keep that secret. Uh, it was and it wasn't. It was one of those curious things where certainly in Oxford and Cambridge, the disappearance of so many mathematicians uh, would have been noted, not just uh, the professor level or the Gordon Welshman lecturer level, but the, the students, a number of the students got, well, you'd expect the students were going off to war. I mean, that, there's no great mystery about that, that kind of absence. Um, also, you might have framed uh, guesses about what might be going on in this curious 19th century country house on the edge of a brick-making town with all these kind of young people wandering around. I mean, it, it, in Phil, uh, Bletchley itself actually looked like a university. It had a very youthful atmosphere, a few professorial types wandering around, but mainly very young people and very young wrens. So anyone, you know, if you were a, a German spy on the ground, uh, you might have wondered what all these young people were doing there. But there was still nothing... There would be nothing you could point to which would say, ah, code-breaking, because... Uh, what would you have? There were no masts. There were no radio masts at Bletchley. There was nothing of a giveaway. You might just assume it might be a research station of some kind, but you wouldn't be able to. You wouldn't be able to say exactly for sure. And for that reason, actually, people sometimes ask: Did the Germans know what was going on at the site of Bletchley Park mm -hmm. itself? 
And did they ever try to bomb it? Because it's a very bombable site. It's just next to a main railway line. The, the bomber could very easily follow the silvery lines in the moonlight towards the target. No easier place in Britain to get. No, Bletchley was never targeted. It got one bomb, and that was by accident, when a bomber was just coming back and offloading whatever he had left after bombing a, a Midlands mm. town. So, in terms of the mysterious absence of various academics, no, because academics were being drawn to all sorts of right. different F parts of the war effort all over the country, and all in rather nice requisitioned country houses. So the Germans wouldn't have even known which country house to get first. Well, yeah, so they didn't have to build a town in Los Alamos or anywhere yeah, well, else. Exactly, because Los Alamos yeah. is, is a particularly hermetically sealed community. Yeah. And that makes it just fascinatingly mysterious to anyone. Uh, it's, it's like dark matter. What's yeah. going on in this place? Whereas Bletchley, they're all still getting the train in and out. And they're still going back to Oxford and Cambridge. And they're still going back to London, back and forth. So there's nothing particularly unusual about it to look at. And one of the interesting things about this time period was the fact that the Germans, at least collectively, never suspected uh, that Enigma was fully broken. I mean, there were some that were saying, this is kind of suspicious that all of a sudden our submarines can't sink any ships. Yeah, um, yes. But w one of the interesting reasons I've read um, about why they weren't quite as suspicious as they might have been was that British code-making was pretty atrocious at the time. Yes. And uh, it was so easy for the German cryptographers to break... Uh, the British codes, they said, these guys are just too stupid to even contemplate uh, <laughs> our codes being broken. And, and because everything was so compartmentalized and so few people had access to ultra-intelligence, uh, this was a way that you could keep this information. Um, it would be wonderful know. to say now, that oh, what a brilliant double bluff that the <laughs> British played there, pretending to be stupid to blind the Germans. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't like that. I believe the British were working with uh, the Typex coding system. In fact, the British had been offered Enigma in 1926 uh, when it was put out for general sale among the military. Uh, I think the British were one of the first to be offered it, and they turned it down flat uh, on the grounds that they didn't think it was portable enough. What they ended up with was a Typex machine, which seemed to my untrained eyes even less portable. And yes, you're right, the Germans were, certainly at the beginning of the war, happily bulldozering their way through British codes. Uh, uh, the, and it took a long time, actually, for the British to realise that that was the case, because the British, rather like the Germans, the British thought, no, 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 our code's not fair, absolutely not. They couldn't be getting into them. And then they thought, oh, they are. And it was only then that they started to tighten it up. With the Germans... It is fascinating that the only senior German who really seemed to have a kind of an uncanny prickling at the back of his neck was Admiral Dönitz, mm -hmm. um, who just had a sense, perhaps, that his naval enigmas, which were already fairly intractable, were being broken. And he was right, they were. And he added an extra rotor to the naval right. enigma machine, uh, the effect of which was to put Alan Turing and Hut 8 out of business for the best part of nine months. That's a shark blackout? Yes. Absolutely. And uh, it's, it's difficult to imagine the, the, the weight of the pressure that those codebreakers were under when that blackout happened, because this is the height of the Battle of the Atlantic. This is the one element of the war which is really causing Churchill to lose sleep, because if those lifelines in Britain are strangled, uh, then that's pretty much that. Uh, and so the weight of pressure on Turing and all of his colleagues in Hutte must have just been unfathomable. It was only thanks, really, um, to the very brave sacrifice. There were three sailors... Um, in the Mediterranean, there was a German submarine going down, a German U-boat, uh, which had been evacuated and was going down. In the middle of the night, in the middle of the Mediterranean, three British sailors got into this sinking sub to see what they could get out of it. No. 
not even knowing particularly. They were, they, they were going, but they found an Enigma machine, a naval Enigma, and also the, the code books, the setting up books, the biogram tables that went with it. And they were able, uh, just uh, astonishing courage, to, to get this out of the sinking sub. Two of them paid with their lives, right. uh, Fasten and Grazier. I think, the, uh, I think Brown survived, but I'd have, to, I'd have to check that. But nonetheless, it was thanks to these men that uh, this naval enigma was then transported back to Blackheath, together with the code books and the biogram tables, and which at last opened up the naval enigmas again. But it was a close-run thing. It was hundreds of thousands of tons of shipping was was sent to the bottom of the sea during that shark blackout period. It was, mm. Uh, mm. And, and I think that um, one of the things that people may not know a lot about is the the ultra intelligence wasn't just used for defensive purposes for rerouting convoys around the submarines. Is that the British, in, in, in turn, the Americans, used Enigma intelligence to, uh, to really help their offensive operations, particularly across the Mediterranean and in North Africa and then in Sicily, uh, where uh, you, I, I, you, in hindsight, you think, how did they not know they were broken? Where we would intercept sig- uh, signals from Rommel saying, I'm short in ball bearings, I'm short in oil, I'm short in particular food. No. And then only those ships would be attacked that were coming across <laughs> the Mediterranean. They would leave all the other ones, and it was just uncanny. Like, the British are just so good at predicting what ships have what. Um, and you know, this turns into this idea of operations research, which now is think tanks and everything else, is because the British had more information than anybody else did. Um, but you talked about the submarine and the, the, uh, the bravery of the British, and actually that segues me pretty well into what I was going to ask you next, is about the relationship between Turing and Bletchley and when they actually go to the United States to get IBM's help and to get the help of American industry to kind of build this broader uh, you know, technological foundation for yeah. code breaking. The reason I, I said it was a good segue is, of course, we made, we made a movie in the United States where it was an American yes. uh, team that went A and, film that's still called yeah. Fury yeah. in Britain today. Every time you, <laughs> you mention it, not just to code breakers, but just to anyone in Britain, and they, they'll just go purple. It's like, how are the Americans, how could they? <laughs> when I give tours or even just talking to people, and when they see the, the Enigma machine in the museum here, they're like, oh, what about that movie where the American crew went? I'm like, just stop talking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's just, that's, uh, <laughs> I, I'm sorry, just, uh, you know, uh, uh, yes. Apologies to any British God bless America, <laughs> but uh, it wasn't us. Um, uh, but but can, yeah, can you speak a little bit to the, uh, the, the, uh, the relationship that later comes to pass with American industry, British ingenuity, and how that comes together to, to help win the war. Well, it is interesting. And as I say, it's a, uh, you know, the, the phrase the special relationship is often invoked. And there are many parts of the military where the, the relationship is much more fractious than special between the American and the British. But in terms of code breaking, uh, from the start, there seemed, to be, there, there seemed to be quite a bit of harmony. There was, it was a very quiet, uh, very, very quiet secret start when just a, a small party of American cryptographers were invited uh, to Bletchley, I think just before America came into the war in 1941. Uh, and this was the, the, the start of a kind of, a kind of unprecedented, I think, sharing of intelligence between two nations. Mm-hmm. It, uh, nothing had been quite done on that scale before. And the relationship grew. There was a, a party of American cryptographers who first of all came to work at Bletchley. Among them, uh, Telford Taylor, the very distinguished Telford Taylor, who went on to become such a, a titan after the war. Uh, he, he reminisced with uh, terrific affection about his time at Bletchley Park. He loved being in this atmosphere where uh, he said the very young women could turn to old professors and tell the old professors how to solve problems. He was, he was beguiled by this uh, extraordinary kind of lack of hierarchy because the American side of the operation was much, much more hierarchical. But also this kind of 
this kind of eccentric society of tea drinkers. It was, it was, it was beguiling on both sides, though, because the, the British were kind of were, were bowled over by the American contingent and their sort of supplies of coffee and orange <laughs> juice and all these kind of uh, comforts that the British had no idea about. Uh, and it kind of grew from there. Uh, uh, as American cryptographers came to, to Bletchley Park, they were quite keen to hear about, uh, first of all, the bomb machines uh, and about Alan Turing's work uh, progressing on from that. And in 1943, it was Alan Turing who went over to right. to, to Washington and worked in the, the Bell Laboratory. So yes, in a sense, it's the, the, the Bletchley story is in some way a kind of microcosm of Britain's war, really, because as ever, it's Britain crying out for kind of uh, for, for material and expertise and help uh, from America. But in return, uh, we're going to share some ingenuity and some sort of leaps forward. Mm. Uh, and I think that was, that was very much the case. It was also the case that Gordon Welshman, senior Bletchley cryptographer, went out to America in 1943 and was so taken with America that after the war, he emigrated there full-time in 1948. Uh, so as I say, this kind of link-up link is, is particularly fruitful uh, as the war goes on, this kind of blending of intelligence and ingenuity. And it becomes the start of a relationship that we still pretty much see today, I think, in essence, don't we? Yeah. Uh, because as Bletchley Park, after the war, kind of regenerated into GCHQ, uh, the Cold War was underway, and the Americans and the British were still very, very close in terms of their, their signals intelligence, right. uh, particularly in the post-war years, because, of course, the Britons still had those outposts of empire. They hadn't quite gone yet, and they had fantastic listening posts all over the world, which, uh, which was of tremendous use to their American allies. So yes, the, the story of the American and the British in the war is one that kind of, it, it kind of resonates much more deeply, perhaps, than any other part right. of that special relationship now, I think. So for anyone interested in looking at NSA's history, we have a museum up the street by Fort Meade, the Cryptology, Cryptology Museum. Um, but Bletchley Park itself now is something that can be visited. Yes, uh, indeed. Yeah. Yes, um, and it, it's well. It's actually now one of Britain's best loved museums. It's it's the, the the new life of the house, and it's all thanks to the Bletchley Park Trust. The new life of the house is absolutely astounding. In 1992, uh, Bletchley Park was just a, a, an unloved Victorian curiosity. It was just a shabby, peeling, falling down house on the edge of a very unloved new town called Milton Keynes. No one paid any attention to it. Uh, but the Bletchley Park Trust got together because they understood they understood the absolutely crucial, pivotal role that it played in the war. And they understood that it's completely, absolutely a heritage site. And so by dint of small donations and grants, they started very modestly uh, to start to stop, literally stop the house falling down. Uh, they stopped the house being demolished, being turned into a supermarket. That was one of the schemes that was being proposed. They saved the site. Um, and they've gradually, gradually uh, regenerated it. It's gone on. And now what we've got is a good phenomenon. It's now one of Britain's best-loved museums. It's getting hundreds of thousands of visitors a year. It's getting famous faces turning up there on a kind of weekly basis. Actually, there's one, uh, one nice story. Ian Fleming, during the war, used to be uh, obviously in naval intelligence. He was one of the very few people who was allowed to know what was happening at Bletchley Park. Uh, not even people in MI6, MI5, they, the, the ordinary operatives weren't told at all. Everyone was in the dark. Ian Fleming knew, and he often paid visits there. The irony is that if his creation, James Bond 007, had been a real spy, James Bond 007 would not have been allowed to know about Bletchley Park, still less would have been allowed anywhere near the premises. That's mm. how secret it was. 
but not that long ago, Sir Roger Moore was one of the famous visitors to Bletchley Park. He was a James Bond who did get over the threshold. Right. And he was very pleased. He got the chance to meet veterans as well, which was fantastic for him. Because that's the other great thing Bletchley Park has done. They've not only restored all the old wooden huts in which the code-breaking activity took place, they've not only restored the Colossus computer and the Heath Robinson and this just astounding technology that, can, that still is with us today in so many ways. Uh, but they've also provided a focal point for the surviving code-breaking veterans, and this is the really important point. Every year, they have a reunion now. Uh, after all those years in silence, all those years in secrecy, where they weren't allowed to tell family, they weren't allowed to tell spouses, parents, children, anything, what they'd achieved, the, the wonder of what they'd achieved there, uh, code-breakers suddenly could, could have come out of the shadows and celebrate the wonder of what they did properly. And for a lot of them, I think it's had a, the, the restoration of the park has had a hugely emotional resonance. And I think uh, for that reason alone, it's worth everyone going up there. It's so, as, as the code breakers could have, told, could, could have told you, couldn't be easier to get to. 45 minutes from London, mm. Euston. That's how they all did it. <laughs> so there's a story uh, relatively recently about um, you know, some deep-pocketed companies, in particular Google, uh, that have really look to pour money into Bletchley Park with the idea that this is the, the foundation of modern computing. Um, yeah. and, and how far has that gone? Is that a process that, that is going to make a difference in the future? It is. Uh, yes, uh, Bletchley Park and Google have teamed up. And uh, again, for, for uh, I think, the, the, the most moving reasons, and we've been talking about Bletchley being a team operation, uh, the, the Google engineers are uh, uh, enthralled to Alan Turing, uh, they, 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 they deify Alan Turing quite rightly as being the, uh, the philosophical, I think, father of the computer. But also on top of that, uh, Google want to recognize figures such as Dr. Thomas Flowers, uh, the, the engineer who built the Colossus machine uh, largely out of his own pocket. And he built it using revolutionary valve technology. Now, the Colossus machine wasn't quite the first computer, but it was basically the, 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 the code-checking machine from which it could be said that all computers sprang. And Google have got together with Bletchley Park because Google is, um, is, is keen to sponsor that side of the story, to, 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 to basically to recognize the resonance that still can be felt today, that the, 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 the impact that Bletchley Park had still ripples through basically every device that we use right. today, every every and indeed every search engine that we use, and it's been it's particularly touching from the point of view of Bletchley because they struggled for years and years to get um, a kind of stable form of funding because for whatever reason they couldn't secure the government funding they needed to stop the buildings falling down, and it was very difficult to secure other sorts of funding from other bodies. So all of this is kind of uh, is fantastically welcome uh, from the point of view of funding, but also fitting too. Uh, in the sense that uh, it's the most modern c company honouring the debt that it owes to, right. to the incredible achievements of this institution. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. And we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we will see you next month. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, 
and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. Thank you.